Welcome. It's 5 p.m. on Thursday, December 16th, and you are at the bar. I'm Jennifer Braceres from Independent Women's Law Center, and unfortunately, Inez Stepman is sick today, but I'm thrilled to be joined instead by senior legal fellow Mae Davis, who's agreed to, to step in to Inez's role. Big shoes to fill, but we know you can do it, May. Welcome. And I'm like to a substitute teacher, yeah. <laughs> I what now? Are you enjoying a Christmas beverage? I'm enjoying the Christmas beverage. So uh, Bud Light puts together this ugly uh, Christmas sweater pack. And so this is the eggnog flavor, which I know sounds weird to have an eggnog seltzer, but... It actually sounds horrible. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but you like it? You recommend no, it? It's fantastic. Last year's uh, ugly sweater pack was probably better than this year's, I would say, but this year's is still pretty good. There you go. Well, I just have a little vodka tonic here that I'll be sipping. A little pregame beverage because my husband and I actually have a Christmas dinner tonight, which I'm excited about because they were all canceled last year. Um, So it's good to be getting back in the swing of things. Um, And today we're actually, since we are getting to the holidays and the end of the year, we're going to be talking about the legal stories that most captivated our attention over the past 12 months. Um, We're going to talk about a few new issues and we'll return to some issues that we have been following on At The Bar since we launched this webcast in March. Um, I want to start with an issue that we haven't covered at all. Um, Well, we've covered the issue, but we haven't covered this particular incarnation of it. Um, And that is the issue of transgender athletes competing in women's sports. Um, We actually had an at the bar a few months ago um, on this topic generally, and with a young woman named Selena Soul, who's a runner, um, who was forced to compete against a male-bodied athlete during her high school career. Um, she actually brought a lawsuit to challenge the state's decision to, to let that transgender runner participate. Um, but the issue has reared its head again um, in the case of Leah Thomas, a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who swam there as a male for three years and is now competing as a woman. Um, I don't know how closely you've followed this story, May, but we have, we do have a little video to kind of tee up uh, what this is all about. Let's see, I'm trying to find it. Uh, let's see, Mackenzie, our producer, maybe you can. Well, controversy at the University of Pennsylvania where a transgender swimmer is smashing records in the U.S. women's competition. Lia Thomas, who competed as a man as recently as 2019, finishing one race a full 38 seconds ahead of the closest rival. Outkick founder Clay Travis joins us right now with reaction. Where would you like to start on this, Clay? Well, I think it's important to point out that this swimmer was for three years a member of the men's swimming team and was downright really good. So this swimmer trained uh, entire life as a male swimmer, dominated, and then takes a year off and comes back as a women's swimmer. Uh, The NCAA says that that is eligible after a full year, 
but clearly when you're winning races by 38 seconds over the person who is in second place, won a 500, uh, this pin swimmer did, by 15 seconds. Right. So when you start to look at how dominant these results are, the NCAA uh, issues uh, that, that allow this to occur don't seem to be actually reflective. And the bigger issue here is it threatens to destroy all of women's sports, all right? Men, this is not sexism, this is biology, are bigger, stronger, and faster than women. That is why we separate men's and women's athletics. Right. So if you are going to allow highly trained and highly skilled men to decide to compete against women, the women are not going to win, and right. this is a monster issue that threatens to become major for many other sports as well. So now this is an issue that we at IW have been sounding the alarm about for some time, actually. Um, and the pushback that we often get is this isn't a big deal. This is just three transgender or two transgender runners in Connecticut. This isn't going to keep happening. And yet it keeps happening. What do you make of it, May? I mean, I totally agree that this is going to keep happening. And unfortunately, I think our legal system has built up to allow or even encourage it to happen because now we've got sort of you can't discriminate against transgender people well does that mean that you've got to let everybody do whatever they want and so we've created this really strange category but let's just wait and see until this swimmer beats katie ledecky's olympic records like does it take that do we need to erase women oh and she's gender? about to it's it's actually very close yeah. And I, you know, I, if we want to just go ahead and get rid of women's sports and let's just say it frankly, rather than kind of letting it uh, disappear, but there won't be a WNBA, there won't be women swimming in the Olympics, there won't be any of that. So I, I think that for me in the White House, when we saw the, the decision in Bostock, the Title VII case saying you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Well, sex now means sex, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And so we quickly tried to say, well, let's put some limits. Let's put some limits. Let's try and cabin yeah. that so that you can protect women's sports. Well, I mean, that just anything that you try and do as an administration can quickly get undone. So of course, we've already seen the Biden administration come in and say, we want to bolster these protections. We want to encourage these types of uh, right. transgender athletes to be in women's sports. And anybody who says otherwise is just this horrible bigot. And it's, you know, like, okay, I, I guess we won't have women's sports. Yeah, for our listeners who don't know or don't remember the last time May was on, she was an attorney in the White House, in the Trump administration um, for four years. So she, she has some experience with this. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the Bostock decision because when that case went up to the Supreme Court, um, it, it was an employment law clay case. It, it had nothing to do with sports or Title IX, I mean, Title VII. But we at IW actually foresaw that that reasoning uh, would soon be applied to Title IX. And in fact, we filed a brief in the Supreme Court um, urging the court to consider that whatever it decided in the case was likely to be applied to the sports context and that they needed to think about that in crafting their ruling. Um, of course, they did not. 
think about that, unfortunately. Um, and lo and behold, just as we predicted, uh, no sooner did the decision come down than lower courts started applying it to sports. Um, even though Justice Gorsuch was very clear in his ruling that this was an employment law case only and applied only to Title VII, the Title IX issue wasn't before them, yada, 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 um, federal courts in Ohio and West Virginia have already applied the Bostock ruling um, to sports and said that biological male athletes who are transgender and identify as female are allowed to compete as women um, under Title IX as interpreted through the lens of the Bostock ruling. So this is exactly what we predicted would happen. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, you say, well, this could be the end to women's sports. And again, I mentioned our, the pushback that we always get, which is, well, that's silly. This is just a handful of people. My, my response to that is twofold. Number one, it's just a few people right now, but they're increasing numbers every year. Number two, it doesn't really matter to me if it's only a handful of people. If one young woman is asked to step aside to make room for a biological male athlete on a division one college team, that's one woman too many. Title IX was enacted to enhance opportunities for women and girls, not to ask them to stand on the sidelines and be spectators in their own sports. Yeah, and I think another piece on the, well, this is just a few people, there's a financial incentive for men to switch over. I mean, even if you look at Wimbledon, for example, the, the pockets, the financial winnings are exactly the same, but women have to play fewer games. So for me, that's like, there's a clear incentive to, as a man, take, you know, a one year of, of hormone therapy or whatever the people are going to try and say the rules are, they're never going to be enough. And all of a sudden now you can win millions of dollars by just doing something for a year. I mean, so interestingly, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't necessarily think, I don't know. I don't happen to know a non-transgender biological man that would do such a thing. But where I do think you're right is that these laws end up applying outside the transgender context. So for example, it's the same reasoning uh, behind Bostock that applies to the Equal Rights Amendment. So states that have Equal Rights Amendments, um, for example, uh, allow male players, not transgender, just male players, to participate in women's field hockey and women's volleyball where the school doesn't have a comparable um, men's team. So you do see a lot of boys say, oh, I could be really good at that. I could smoke the women in that. Or, you know, I'm a lacrosse player. I don't have a fall sport. I'll just go out for field hockey, you know, in the fall just for kicks. Um, and it is the same reasoning that applies. And, and there are boys that take advantage of that. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that no self-respecting person is like, I'm going to go wear a skirt right now and go try and pretend to play women's <laughs> sports. But you don't actually have to be a self-respecting person because we all remember the U.S. women's team lost to high school boys. Oh, and it was just a scrimmage or whatever. It's like you don't actually need the men who are at the top of their sport, the people who are already famous or already making money. These can be kind of weird high school, college 
I mean, and we've got Caitlyn Jenner, like sometimes really high performing athletes do, you know, have quirks like that type of transition. Right. Caitlyn Jenner is an example. So I, you know, I hope that there's a future in women's sports, but also it's not, I think just that people are going to replace, but as you were saying, even if there's just one, I, as a woman wouldn't want to join the track and field team, if I knew that I had to pole vault behind the man who like just the participation will end up going down, even if you're not directly competing for a spot. Right. It's very frustrating. I think um, what's interesting is my understanding is that most of the uh, Leah Thomas's teammates even are opposed to this because of course, swimming is an individual sport where you're competing against your own teammates. Um, but they're afraid to speak out. And that is an important issue in and of itself. The fact that the girls who are most affected by this don't feel comfortable voicing their opinions. Um, and, you know, I saw in the Daily Mail today that actually some of the parents have written a letter to UPenn and to the NCAA asking them to change the policy. And even some of those parents are doing so anonymously. So it raises really important issues about cancel culture. And I just wanna say, I think it's so offensive the way the University of Pennsylvania responded to these concerned parents. They sent them a letter that essentially says, um, we have mental health services available and we urge your children to seek counseling if this is upsetting to them. So, you know, they're basically being treated as if they're crazy. They're being gaslighted. Let's just admit it. That's what that's what's happening. Yeah. And so we like, you know, how do you fight back? Because this has been, you know, the determined moral good is to let transgender athletes do whatever they want, because, of course, it's bad to treat transgender people or any people poorly. Of course, we all can agree with that. So now everybody's got to be able to do whatever they want. But in doing so, we've harmed and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to just say cisgender people. We've harmed people who actually are their gender. And so, you know, they're in the White House. We tried to think about, well, if you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity, are you now discriminating against people who actually identify as the gender that they are? Because they can only play the sport that their gender is. But if you, the transgender people can do both. So like some people have two options and other people have one, you know, you're going to have to see some lawyers get creative and do something like that because otherwise you, cancel culture is, is going to win. It, it usually does. People are scared to lose their jobs. They're scared to lose their country club memberships. They're scared to be yelled at on Facebook. And, um, you yeah, and I, think, I think it's important when we talk about this issue to remember that it's not discrimination to say that a male-bodied athlete can't participate on a woman's team. Not everybody has a right to be a varsity athlete. Not everybody has a right to be a division one athlete. And even Renee Richards, the pioneering transgender tennis player from the seventies has come out and said in retrospect, maybe the price I had to pay for living my authentic life was to give up tennis. Maybe that's what I should have done, because the truth is I did have advantages over my female competitors. And people have to accept that choices have consequences and not everybody has a right to do everything. It doesn't mean you're discriminated against because you make a choice 
that closes other doors for you. That's, that's life. And people need to accept that. Well, yeah, life should never be hard in any way. You always have to live your most authentic self and do everything. I mean, that's the, the message here. Th that's the message. All right. I want to move on to another case that captivated um, the nation actually three years ago. And then again, more recently, and that is the curious case of Jesse Smollett or however you pronounce his name. Um, I think I, who, who's the comedian that calls him juicy Smollett? I, That's I, Dave I, Chappelle. Dave yeah. Chappelle. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about our friend juicy because Three years ago, um, he claims to have been the victim of a horrible hate crime. And almost immediately, the you know chattering classes came out and, and before even hearing all the facts, condemned the attack, said it was an example of how MAGA people had, had you know were, were violent and racist um, because, of course, uh, his allegation was that he had been attacked by two white guys wearing MAGA hats um, who threw bleach on him and, and put a rope around his neck. Um, very quickly, his story began to unravel and we, we, it, it soon became apparent that it wasn't true. Um, I have to say, I'm, I'm one of the people who really from the beginning said this doesn't smell past the smell test. And maybe it's just because I'm old and I remember Tawana Brawley. Um, but this reeked of Tawana Brawley to me. And frankly, it was just absurd. I, somebody who wants to go out and commit a hate crime isn't going to dress up in their MAGA gear to go do it. Let's just start with that. Um, so I, I wasn't buying it. But I don't know. How about you, May? Were you buying it at the outset? You know, I I don't think I followed the mainstream media enough to know what an outrage. I mean, some some news stories, you know, are news stories. I think this was one of those news stories that I'm like, I think this will go away tomorrow um, and didn't really give it too much thought. But of course, President Trump said, oh, you know, I really he sympathized with Juicy Um and and I think had to. I mean, everyone had to. You had to say racism is bad. We've got to root it out. I mean, especially President Trump after being accused of being this horrible white supremacist because of Charlottesville. So, you know, there, especially on the right, I think there was a real push for everyone to come out and say, we, you must condemn racism at this moment. Ready, go. Um, and with those types of like. Right you know, before you even know anything. The story, of course, was so fanciful. I mean, it's, you know, he didn't call the police right away. He he went back to his apartment. Um, you know, the, the whole thing, I mean, that these people had, had followed him at whatever, two in the morning and lay in wait for him by the subway in downtown Chicago at 2 a.m. It just, something about it seemed off. And of course, it turns out that the entire thing was a hoax. Um, whether it was just to get attention or it was part of his attempts to, you know, get his employers, the, the directors and the producers of the television show he's on 
to you know pay him more attention, pay him more money. I don't know. Um, but he is still to this day maintaining that that this all happened. Um, but he was recently convicted of five out of six counts of disorderly conduct for staging the attack on himself and and for essentially for filing a false police report about it in 2019. Um, the the police um, actually are still suing him civilly for one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Uh, in damages, basically for reimbursement for the cost of their investigation. Um, they were so angry about it because, of course, they, they, you know, they jumped to it and put a lot of manpower on this. And he was a high profile person. And um, it was just a huge waste of resources and, and taxpayer dollars. Um, but I have I do have a little quick I have two videos I want to play. One is um, a little. Uh, Saturday Night Live snippet about the case. And then I want to roll some tape of um, the White House press secretary kind of responding to Jesse's conviction. So here's the SNL clip. On Thursday, a Chicago jury declared Jesse Smollett really bad at acting. <laughs> On Thursday, a Chicago jury declared Jesse Smollett really bad at acting. <laughs> Smollett was found guilty of charges related to staging a hate crime. It's the worst staged hate crime since my all-Christian production of Fiddler on the Roof. All right, so that's how SNL handled it. Um, now I'm gonna we're gonna roll the White House press secretary responding to a question about um, how, at the time, candidate Biden and and Senator Harris responded. Uh, to the alleged real quick one on the Jesse Smollett verdict. Mm -hmm. um, both the president and vice president tweeted um, at the time of that attack. Um, the president tweeted what happened to Jesse Smollett must never be tolerated in this country. We're with you, Jesse. The vice president called it an attempted modern day lynching. Um, since the guilty verdict, are there any lessons learned here on uh, rushing to judgment when a crime is alleged? I think uh, there, are, there are lessons learned perhaps for everybody who commented uh, at the time, including former President Trump. I wish April Ryan was here because I think she asked him the question. I, do I see her somewhere or no? Okay. She just left where he said, I can tell you that it's horrible. It it's, doesn't get worse uh, in response to her question about the about the uh, about Jesse Smollett at the time. Uh, I would say that we respect the jury's uh, decision. Lying to the police, particularly about something as heinous as a hate crime, is shameful. Uh, instances of that need to be investigated fully, and those found guilty need to be punished. And false accusations divert valuable police resources away from important investigations. They make it harder for real victims to come forward and be believed. You know, if you look back at the time, it's also true and important to note that accusations of hate crimes should be taken seriously, and they need to be fully investigated. But that's where everybody was looking at it at the time. But certainly knowing what we know now, it's important to also note uh, the danger of lying to police and lying about hate crimes and the fact that it diverts important resources. Go ahead, Kristen. So I think interestingly, I mean, she really reverts to her script when talking about um, how one shouldn't lie to the police. 
but then is very comfortable speaking freely and off the cuff about how the real issue is hate crimes themselves and how they need to be prosecuted. Um, you know, there seems to be sort of no, gee, we all got this wrong. Um, she just has to sort of say, you shouldn't lie to the police, and then pivots immediately to, well, the real issue is the hate crimes. I thought that was a little ridiculous. Yeah, and the White House has really been focusing on a narrative that hate crimes exist in large portion in America and that they're increasing. Like they have been going to precincts that don't report hate crimes because they don't exist and saying you need you need to give us hate crimes and uh, publishing that there's been an increase in hate crimes in, in the United States and in New York City. And then if you look at the data, it's like against Jewish people and Asian people. Um, so not the white supremacy that the, that they're trying to say exists. But definitely this is a White House that wants wants to have racial division in this country. Like they want that to be the message and the narrative and hate crimes have to be treated seriously. Like, well, what about illegal immigration? Should that be treated seriously? What about just crime, property crime, burglary? Like, should that be treated seriously? But like, it's hate, hate crime is the thing. Well, I think all violent crimes against human beings should be treated with the utmost seriousness. But the question is, you know, sort of as a sociological matter, are crimes against people of color, because they're people of color, occurring with greater frequency than in the past? And I think the answer for the most part is that they are not. Um, but again, like you said, that, you know, that doesn't fit with the narrative. And, um, you know, I think there are, people are politically invested in in that narrative. And so frankly, Jussie Smollett, Smollett's conviction um, on, on basically creating a hoax and lying to the police about it um, undermines their narrative and that's very threatening to them. Yeah, um, and she, men she mentions lying to the police, but I think what was really the problem was lying to the public. Like this was a publicity mm -hmm. stunt. It was not really, I mean, the police were used, but there's a continual lying to the public. I mean, just recently with the Lincoln Project going and pretending to be white supremacists at a Glenn Youngkin oh my gosh. rally. Um, you know, those types of, or the, the I, I think two other examples. One is we knew that this man in uh, Colorado was at a baseball game saying the N-word, but when he was really just calling the mascot, whose name was Dinger, and then like, but this was, it was super well covered. And then the noose that was uh, discovered in NASCAR, which was the same rope that was in all the other, you know, and that had always been there. And everyone had said it had been there since the be like forever. It's not a noose. So, I mean, it looked like one, but there, there was just no context, but we're continually hearing these stories um, that are actually, that all turn out to be non-stories. So at what point does the public just, stop when they say oh somebody said the n-word like at a baseball game we just we know that it's false like and then no one listens anymore and like at some point the public can't take the crying wolf anymore yeah yeah it's interesting and especially when it comes to uh, you know crimes i mean in some cases the media is so careful to always call them alleged crimes um you know when in fact 
the media doesn't actually really have to do that, right? I mean, that's sort of a legal fiction that is for the purposes of the burden of proof in a court of law. Um, but in many cases, the media go, bends over backwards to you know, emphasize that not all the facts are known, these are allegations, yada, yada, yada. And then in other cases, um, just completely reports uh, the statements that they're being told without any investigative journalism to see if there's there's merit or truth behind those allegations. But we all know the media is biased, so I don't think we have to dwell on that too much longer. Um, I actually want to move on to another trial and verdict that came down this year, and that is the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Um, this is something that was watched very carefully and frankly was given a political gloss by people on both sides of the aisle um, in a way that I didn't necessarily think was appropriate. Um, again, you know, the left sort of had their narrative about white supremacy and, um, you know, sort of Trump supporters being murderous, racist people. Um, but at the same time, the right had a narrative about self-defense and gun rights and sort of made this I think troubled kid um, out to be too much of a hero after after his uh, after he was acquitted. What do you make of that? I think during the trial, I probably thought that you're right that there's nothing her like it. You know, don't take a a gun to a situation you know is going to escalate and you know, why is, why are you here? What's going on? You know, listening to the, the interviews afterward, um, I, I think I might've changed my tune on that. I mean, this was his community. He was lifeguarding there the day before when people thought, you know, I, I really do. I don't want to see my community burned down. Um, and I did grow up in a community, small town in Western Kansas, where everyone really does have firearms. Like everyone does go hunting. Like it's not strange to have one. It's not strange to see one. It's not strange to hold one. It's not strange to be around people who have them. And like, you know, I think the DC media gloss of like an armed person is much different than the daily experience of a, an armed person in other communities. So right. maybe he's not a hero necessarily, but I, I think that, is this a good kid who really wanted to do the right thing? I am now on the side of very much. Yes. I mean, he wants to be a nurse when he grows up. Like there's just this kind of like caretakerness about him. Yeah. I mean, my reaction sort of as a parent of a 16 year old boy is if there were riots and disturbances happening in my community and I saw my son headed towards the door with a weapon, I would be like, get back in the house. This isn't happening. So of course my reaction was, you know, where are the parents in all this? And um, what, how, why was this kid raised to think that, going down to a crime scene, basically, and, and trying to help law enforcement uh, is a good idea. I mean, I just, my kids would never think that it was a good idea to go down to the scene of a crime and offer assistance to the community in the, you know, as it was happening. So that's sort of how I looked at it. Um, 
That doesn't make him guilty. The evidence, you know, it was clear that he was not the aggressor. Um, and, you know, the prosecution just didn't prove its case. Um, despite the fact, you know, what the prosecutor said to the jury at one point, you lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. Um, that is just a misstatement of law. And, you know, so I, you know, while I very much do not think of Kyle Rittenhouse as, as some sort of hero, um, I also think the jury got it right. And I think the prosecution really misconstrued the law. Yeah. And I think because Kyle Rittenhouse is an outlier in the sense that it is strange to see a kid go arm themselves and then go defend property. Um, you know, if that were standard, if everyone knew that you can't just burn down property, you can't beat up business owners, you can't steal, you can't loot, you can't riot, you, you can't destroy cities because there's going to be somebody coming back at you in every instance, uh, you might not have seen some of the destruction. So like, I, I do agree that, that that behavior is, you know, it's strange when, when you think about it, but you know, would, would we have a better world if like you knew that everyone was going to fight back? I, I don't know. Like right now we only know criminals are going to fight. Like just criminals will fight. No law abiding people will fight. And that that's not a good balance because we just don't have the law enforcement presence in some of these liberal cities in order to protect law abiding people. Right. And of course we should. And that, I mean, that goes to the whole defund the police thing and, and why that's a bad idea. Um, because, you know, look, there should be personal responsibility from everyone. There should be personal responsibility from these looters from, from, you know, the community um, and the police should be doing their job and doing it vigorously. But in an era where, where, you know, they're under a lot of pressure um, not to police aggressively, um, particularly in communities of color, uh, you know, I, I guess I can see why some people feel, you know, citizens feel the need to step up but i you know in an ideal world that shouldn't be the way it works right we shouldn't have vigilante justice we shouldn't have citizens to you know not just defending their own property but going out into the community to try to enforce the law that that should be the job of the police department and um their hands should not be tied as, as I think they are in a lot of places now, not just because of defunding or, or, or less funding, um, but because of political pressure. I agree. And so it's funny to hear the same group of people say no vigilante justice and defund the police. It's like, well, if you, def you, you actually do have to choose one because you right. have to defend yourself. So either the police are going to defend or you have to defend, but you can't have just criminality. So um, right. And interestingly, you know, Trayvon Martin's mother came out and said just that um, during the summer of, of 2020. She said, no, we should not defund the police. We can't have vigilante justice. That's, you know, we, we can't have that. So um, I'm glad that, you know, some people are speaking out and, and pointing out that hypocrisy where it exists. But Unfortunately, you know, again, the media narrative doesn't always want to point out hypocrisy. Right. 
Um, okay, let's switch gears, if you will, and talk about the Supreme Court for a bit. Um, we had a lot going on at the Supreme Court last year and this coming year. Um, one case that I want to pick your brain about, May, is um, the case of the vulgar cheerleader. Um, and that is a case that I, I consider to be a great First Amendment victory. Um, I think you may have a different perspective, but um, the case was essentially... Uh, a case about what well, was a case about the First Amendment. And the, uh, the cheerleader in question had basically sent a Snapchat over the weekend to a bunch of her friends um, that said the F word, F, uh, F softball, F cheer, F school, F everything, um, because she had been cut from one of her, her teams and she was angry about it. Um, and the school punished her for this, um, and she hired the ACLU and took the case to the Supreme Court. We at the Independent Women's Law Center filed a brief on behalf of the cheerleader, um, not on behalf of the cheerleader, on the on the side of the cheerleader, um, and the court ruled eight to one in the cheerleader's favor, holding that uh, the school the slash government does not have a right to punish students for speech that occurs off campus um, and which is not threatening um, to the school itself. But you used to be a teacher and I think you have a different perspective on this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the case? Yeah, so, I mean, I think this would be a different case if the texts were something like, I voted for Donald Trump, or I voted for Joe Biden. Of course, these are high school kids, they don't vote. But you know, political speech, something to the core of what the First Amendment was designed to protect. But instead, this is a Snapchat that is catty toward the coaches, catty toward the girl who made the team. And, you know, if it proliferated, would just create a really bad environment for cheerleading, create a real environment for the coaches, and it wouldn't create the camaraderie that you actually need to have a team. So I was a teacher and I can tell you like cell phones in the classroom, Snapchat, we didn't have it then, but TikTok, Instagram, like it is a huge problem. Not only there's like pornographic material, there's vulgar material, there's right. mean material, and it's all off campus in the sense that kids mostly do this outside of, of school. And it, it's hard to say, you know, the Supreme Court said, well, they didn't demonstrate enough of a, an effect on the classroom because it permeates the classroom. I mean, because it is woven in. And mm -hmm. so trying to pick out who's the instigator, who's the bully, who's the victim is really difficult. But sometimes it's clear. Sometimes the, the, the instigator is clear. And so for me, I think the authority of a group, you know, and this wasn't even a, a classroom, this was a group saying that's not part of our code of conduct. That's not who we are as cheerleaders. And so I'm going to punish you for that. I think is somewhat similar to me in a, in a sorority where you couldn't go drinking in your letters, you know, who cares mm -hmm. if you go drinking in your letters? But it was part of a decorum. Like as sorority girls, we don't want to be seen as in our letters, you know, hammered at the bars. And I, I see that somewhat similarly. And so Justice Thomas- There, said, there are cases where the- um, and I forget lower court cases that that dealt with football players in uniform. And so um, in those cases, lower courts held that, you know, when you're wearing the uniform, 
you're representing the school and or the institution and and therefore the institution has a right to say um you know you don't have a right to be vulgar or you don't have a right to say or do certain things while wearing that uniform similar to your sorority example but this was not that case this was her on her personal account um sending out a snap which is only now you say it's pervasive and it is but but Theoretically, it's only pe people who sort of subscribe to her snap feed. Um, and in the end, it was basically just her using the F word. It wasn't really um, targeting or threatening anyone at the school. Um, Justice Breyer put it this way at oral argument. He said he didn't see any evidence that this particular snap caused material or substantial disruption. Um, and he said that if the school can punish a student for this type of message, then, quote, every school in the country would be doing nothing but punishing. And, you know, schools have to make decisions on what they're going to punish and whatnot. If you overpunish, then then like kids aren't even scared by it anymore. Like, you know, oh, everybody's in detention. Like it doesn't matter. I mean, overpunishing there there's a real incentive against that like it loses its, uh, you know, authority. But I, you know, obviously like I'm in the minority here, eight justices to one, but the, the way that the opinion is written in my mind, like there's no rule at all. There's no clear bright line, like off campus speech is completely protected or like you still really don't have any idea. So to the extent what we're really trying to protect is what is what we really would believe to be First Amendment speech. So I should be able to wear an American flag shirt to school, even though it's Cinco de Mayo. That's a case. Like yeah. um, I, I should be able to wear my MAGA hat if everyone else is wearing hats on a particular day. I still think that those types of activities are not going to be protected even under this test because all a teacher would have to say is that created a disruption in my classroom and I knew I know it's going to create a disruption in my classroom and so I shut it down and there's nothing in this case that I see that would actually like prevent that and uh, you know nor is it a clear on on off campus distinction so I guess I don't see the value of the case as that great. And then like at the end of the day, we, the cheerleader like got to say the F word a lot of times. Okay, that's fine. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do see what you're saying. I think because the opinion was, um, well, very Briar-esque, right? On the one hand, on the other hand, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I think the essential, the core holding is that speech which occurs off campus and on one's own time is protected unless it's really you know threatening or bullying unless it's a disruption isn't enough is is how i read the opinion that the speech that occurs off campus uh and online would really have to be a threat against a teacher or you know severe bullying um in a way that's you know well, a threat, you know, a, a threatened harm, actual harm. Um, that's that's how I think the lower courts are going to parse this all out. Um, but of course, that remains to be seen. And the opinion does invite more litigation because it's not real clear on what the rule is. Yeah. And um, I sort of in litigating some Title IX cases, reading through, 
I will be interested to see what happens because at least there's a sort of ongoing case right now in the Sixth Circuit where you have kids who are spreading all sorts of like kind of pornographic, but not quite to the point of illegal photos everywhere. You know, the pictures are taken outside of school, but they exist on phones, which means they exist in school. And so it's not disruptive in the sense it's not bullying. It's not, uh, you know, like this was consensual behavior, but it is very distracting. And then maybe the girl doesn't like it. I mean, there's just so much minutia there that if a teacher wants the authority to say, you took this picture, you know, you're getting attention. We're not passing these photos. And now they're, they're hesitant. Like, okay, I've got to respect their first amendment right to share. I do see that, but, but to be the devil's advocate, I, I do feel strongly um, that schools and teachers shouldn't be policing what kids are saying outside the classroom. And I worry that in the era of cancel culture, right, if, if some kid tweets out something that's politically incorrect um, or, you know, whether it's go MAGA or, you know, whatever, Jesse Smollett's a liar at a time when everybody thinks he's telling the truth, um, that comments like that will be punished, even though they're completely legitimate comments. And, you know, even if they're, they're not said in the most polite way, kids have a right to say those things. And so that's what I worry about. I worry about the, you know, the slippery slope. I'm not really that concerned with people having the right to swear uh, all the time. And, you know, frankly, if I were that girl's mother, I would have been very displeased and, you know, probably would have punished her. But, um, but that's not the question, right? The question is, can the school slash government punish her? Right. And I, I think Justice Thomas's like point generally was schools stand in the shoes of parents. That's their relationship. And when we look to the history of the First Amendment, there has never been any restriction on schools' ability to punish kids or parents' ability to punish kids. And and basically, like, kids don't have First Amendment rights. They're children at school. So um, I, you know, I know that that's not, like, kids do have rights. They probably think they have more rights than they actually do have. But... Um, oh, tell me about it. When it comes to the First Amendment, how many times has one of my kids said but I have a right to free speech. And I've had to explain to them, you don't have a right to free speech vis-a-vis your parents, right? only vis-a-vis the government. Like, (laughs) let's just make that clear. Anyway, moving on. Um, A report came out recently from the, the, I forget what it was technically called, the Commission on the Future of the Supreme Court, something like that. Um, This was a commission that had been put together by the Biden administration to study potential reforms of the Supreme Court. Um, lots of people were concerned that that the commission was going to recommend court packing or adding more justices to the court um, in order to sway the court in a particular direction. Um, the report that was issued uh, recently did, did not make that recommendation. Um, it didn't strongly condemn it either. It mostly said that there was wide disagreement on whether or not that was a good idea. It did come out 
and recommend term limits for the justices. Um, you recently wrote a blog about this and more particularly about commission reports generally. Um, what's your take on, on sort of the report and the usefulness of the, of the report as well as on the underlying questions it was asked to address? I think it's the most useless thing that I've ever read. <laughs> no, okay. I like read sort of uh, beauty blogs. So like maybe less that this, <laughs> you know, that's less. But uh, I, I guess the, the commission basically analyzed options much more than like recommended Right. Sometimes their analysis, you can see where they, they feel that sort of it's the Republicans' fault that we're even having this discussion because Republicans broke democracy. And so like now we're going to have to figure out how to fix it. And like, should we pack the court? I mean, that was really the um, sort of the background of the piece. But uh, I think it actually ended up much better uh, as far as pro-democracy than it could have because uh, two of the very conservative members of the commission actually quit very early on. One was a professor of mine at Harvard Law School, Jack Goldsmith. He worked in the Bush administration. And then Caleb Nelson is a professor at UVA. These were known as the, the two conservative professors that were on it. There were a couple of other conservatives as well. And they quit and they didn't give reasons why they were quitting. So there's kind of concern of like, is this really that nutty? But some of the inside baseball are like, oh, there were kind of three groups. There were the conservatives. There were the moderates who were still, you know, the no change moderates. Like, we don't like necessarily what we see, but we think change is worse. And there's a very small group of progressives who are like, flow it up. Um, and, and I think that's generally reflected in the, recommend, the non-recommendation that was produced. And, and tell us what you think about these sort of reports generally. I thought you wrote a, a, a yeah, so, funny blog on this that people should look at at IWF.org um, about just sort of how these types of reports are, you know, kindling wood, essentially. Exactly. So it, people kind of want the president to do something. You know, we they see a problem and they want the president to do something, but there's very little that the president can actually do. The president can write an executive order, but in the executive order, he can only direct executive agencies. Those are just people who directly work for him. So even, and then even if he's gonna direct an executive agency, they have to go through this whole administrative process in order to make a rule and then they get sued. I mean, there's just really little you can do. You can do a travel ban you can do travel bans. And so they did one on South Africa. Congratulations, you did a travel ban. Um, but what is, you know, the like, and we saw this, like, oh, we want you to shut down Twitter. There was a big, we just hate Twitter. We, we need to get Twitter gone. So what do we do? We draft an executive order. And what does the executive order do? It says, we want to report on everything bad that Twitter does. We want to report on what we can do about Twitter. We want to report on this. We want to report on that. And that's, that's what happened here, which is there was a lot of, you know, I want to do something, but of course there's really not much that the president can do. And there's not much that actually secretly people want the president to do. 
So you write a report and it kind of scratches the itch for a second and then it goes away. And I can't even explain to you how many reports we received. The reports are drafted and I'm sure there's somebody who cared a lot about it and they spent a lot of hours and they put it all 300 pages together and they give it to the White House and the White House, some junior person, me, like 27 years old, takes it and then puts it away. <laughs> that's it. Right. So that's what happens to reports. That's so do, do you think this report um, has given the president sort of the political cover or bought him the time that he wants So and, and now nothing will come of it? Or do you think um, there will be pressure on this president and Democratic Congress to try to add justices to the court? I think that by the time the pressure grows, so by the time you get the really spicy decisions next June following, uh, you know, current arguments that we're hearing, there will not be enough time to get through Congress any sort of change by the time the election happens. So I do think that, yes, there will be a big clamor, but this report's not going to be necessarily helpful. What will be helpful is that everybody on the commission has now went and written their own op-eds on like what they think. So Nancy Gertner has an op-ed saying that we need to do court expansion. And then the big term limits people have written like their big term limits op-ed. So, you know, the split off op-eds I think will be, but this report I don't think will be necessarily useful except for there is a conclusion that, legally, you can probably change the court. It says some people said you can't, but we think you can. So I think there will be some cover to like this, you know, changes are available and maybe it will help people accept that change change is okay. It's legally okay. Hmm. You know, this issue always fascinates me because I don't understand. I mean, the Democrats are usually very good at playing the long game, Um, This seems to me to be an instance where it's reversed and uh, the Republicans are more concerned about the long game and the Democrats are being very short sighted. And, um, you know, even if they were to get everything they wanted, you know, expanding the court term limits, um, those are not things that will necessarily uh, be to their benefit going forward Um, because, you know, as as. I think it was, who was it? Um, Some senator who said, Democratic senator said during the primary season, you know, if if the Democrats pack the court, the Republicans will do it the next time. And one day we'll be, you know, sitting here talking to our grandchildren when they ask us, you know, granddad, why are there 150 justices on the Supreme Court? Um, So, you know, institutionally, it's it's not necessarily a good thing, but even politically, it's not necessarily a good thing because it starts a tit for tat that that they won't necessarily win. Um, and you know, isn't the best answer just to try to appoint justices who will apply the laws written, not behave politically? You know, all of the the things that conservatives, jurisprudential conservatives, talk about that is the best way to protect everybody's interests from the from behind the veil of ignorance, frankly. And somehow the Democrats don't seem to see that. No, and I think, you know, they are very upset that uh, Trump got to replace Justice Ginsburg. 
But all of these things, this isn't, you know, the Republicans' evilness. Justice Ginsburg had an opportunity to retire when President Obama was president, just like Justice Kennedy had the opportunity to retire when President Trump was president. So I, I mean, if I think the Scalia fight obviously really charged everybody up and, and is part of why we're having this conversation. Um, but like the, the political game will always be there blowing it up and just having a million justices, you know, I, I guess, I, don't, I have less faith in conservatives maybe than you, which is that I think Democrats will play this game and will have, well, I don't think, you know, we should add justices. And, and conservatives tend to be a little bit more hesitant to use nuclear options like Democrats do. So I actually think conservatives will be put at a serious disadvantage if there are no rules. Conservatives constrain themselves with rules. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we're almost um, out of time, but I don't want to end our year in review special. There's actually so much more we could talk about um, vaccine mandates and all sorts of other trials that happened this year. Um, but I don't want to stop without talking about my favorite topic, Britney Spears and the conservatorship. Um, she is now free. Uh, this is a topic on which Inez and I had some degree of, uh, of disagreement. Inez's perspective was essentially she's she's a 40 year old woman. And even if she's has mental illness and is incapable of managing her finances um, or, you know, even staying on her medication or managing her children or her personal life, um, at some point, society and the courts have to let her make her own bad decisions. Um, I came at it from a little different perspective. Um, I, you know, just having uh, loved and cared about people with severe mental illness and seeing uh, parents really struggle with how they can help their adult mentally ill children. Because once they turn 18, the parents have very little ability to get them the treatment they need if they are resisting it, um, to prevent them from blowing their fortunes if they are spending it. Um, or to you know prevent them from from doing all sorts of, of harm um, to to themselves or others. So you know I've sort of I've I've seen this play out, and I had sympathy for the Spears parents. Um, my prediction was that there would be changes made to the conservatorship, um, that her father would be replaced, that that she would have more control. Um, but that it would be a gradual process and that the court would release her um, slowly. Instead, what the court has done is basically uh, cut the ties um, and she's she's free to do what she wants with her money and her life at this point. Um, I don't think it's going to end well for her, but what do you think? Yeah, I think already I'm just the the freedom and i don't follow her on twitter or instagram but i do take peloton and they tell me everything that britney is doing and like already attacking christina aguilera and we're really feeling our freedom here so yeah <laughs> right it's it it probably is not going to be pretty for a while but i think that that was the right call for this case I think the real question will be whether you see state by state changes to their conservatorship laws to make them 
looser or somehow create a level of oversight over the court appointed conservator. And I don't actually think now that Brittany has officially been freed that this is going to result in any sort of clear movement because for every case that's sympathetic, there's, I think in our country, a movement completely in the opposite direction. That's what we see with vaccine mandates, which is we actually don't think people are able to make their own decisions and that other people are smarter and better and should make those decisions for us. And I think as a nation, we've more and more accepted that. We've become more and more comfortable with Mm -hmm. some people are just stupid and they're bad decision makers and they should not be allowed to make their decisions. And I know that's different, but I think the more as a nation that we get comfortable with that idea, the more we'll we'll be comfortable with the idea of conservatorships generally. Yeah, I mean, I think there probably is a need for reform in many ways. Um, and I wouldn't have objection to more sort of oversight of the conservators um, or maybe tinkering with the burden of proof after a certain amount of time as far as, you know, whose burden is it to show that it should be lifted or, or not lifted. Um, those types of things, I think, are worth talking about. Um, but generally, I I think that parents, it should be easier for parents um, to be involved and to, to, to get their kids uh, psychiatric care when they need it. It should be easier for the, the concerned relatives of a homeless person to get them off the streets and get them civilly committed. It shouldn't be harder. Um, and we, we, my view is sort of the opposite of yours. I think we have such an individualist, uh, civil libertarian streak in this country that people have a right to make their own decisions um, that, you know, for many years, we, we've made it impossible for the relatives of the homeless mentally ill or the homeless drug addicted uh, to, to get them help. Um, so I think, you know, look, Brittany started a conversation here about guardianship or conservatorship, depending on what state you're in. It's called different things. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's a conversation that's long overdue. Mm-hmm. So before we go, um, I just want to quickly ask you, May, what do you see as some of the big legal issues on the horizon for 2022? What should, what should we be watching? So I think, for me, that's three things. One is the equity agenda. So all sorts of lawsuits about having to have equal board representation of men and women, about removing gifted uh, classes because they discriminate in some way. Like So all these lawsuits about kind of affirmative action, equity, you know, balancing. The, uh, the other one is a lot of election law. So we're heading into an election season. There's going to be redistricting. You've got Texas-type laws, Georgia-type laws. They're all being sued by the government. Um, and that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then the third thing are administrative abuses. So as the Biden administration gets less and less done through Congress, uh, they will start doing more and more unilaterally. And we'll see a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, those are all things to watch for in the new year. Hopefully, we'll be able to bring you back to talk about some of those topics. Um, But for now, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we hope to see you in the new year. At the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. It's also available for download on all your favorite podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and others. 
Um, we're going to leave you tonight instead of with our usual outro with a little Britney Spears montage to, I guess, celebrate her freedom. Um, so with that, let's see, uh, Mackenzie, maybe you can help me tee that up. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. See you in 2022.